taking the steps and the action to make the changes that you want to see change. You can't expect change to happen if you are not a part of the change. Don't just say things, do something about them. Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Janeri. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. This episode is dedicated to Stand for Education. We would love to honor the incredible work of today's guest, Mari Malik, by highlighting the charity she founded. Stand for Education is a global community of changemakers helping children, women, and refugees in conflict-ridden areas access quality education, creative arts programs, and vocational training, along with nutritious meals and medical support. By empowering children, women, and refugees in South Sudan, Mari and Stand for Education are changing lives and uplifting communities. Go to standforeducation.com to learn about the projects that you can stand up for. A donation of any size not only contributes to the academic advancement of vulnerable children and youth, but supports Stand for Education's work raising awareness around gender equity, peace reconciliation, and the protection of women, girls, and refugees in South Sudan and beyond. Hey Change Podcast listeners, we are inviting you to check the show notes or go to standforeducation.com. There you'll find this quote by Nelson Mandela. Education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. So let's change the world. Go to standforeducation.com and be part of the change today. Mari Malik is a South Sudanese refugee with an incredible story to share. Today, she's a model actress, DJ, and entrepreneur. And in this episode, Mari shares with us her experience of fleeing her home country as a child and a long road to finding her way and forging her own path in America. I first saw Mari all over New York City in her Kenneth Cole campaign. She's also worked with clients like Lanvin, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, acted in the feature film, The Nile Hilton Incident, which was awarded the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize Dramatic. And Mari was highlighted for her humanitarian work during the White House Correspondence Dinner in 2016. After advocating for the rights of disempowered children through organizations like UNICEF, Mari started her own charity, Stand for Education, which we would love for you to support. We talked about so many great things in this episode, from her struggling journey on the run to her modeling career and the changes she wants to see in the industry, especially in beauty standards for Black women. Mari is probably one of the most fierce doers and changemakers I know, and her incredible story and approach to life is so uplifting. So without further ado, this is the one and only Mari Malik. Mari, we are so happy to have you here today. We've really been looking forward to speaking with you. You have an incredible personal story, and I know our listeners are going to gain so much from hearing about the journey that you have been on and who you have made yourself into today. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. 
I am happy to be here, finally. Yes. <laughs> I want to dive into your personal story. And I thought we could start with like your childhood. So just to give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what they're in for today, you are a refugee from South Sudan and you have made yourself into this incredible, powerful woman who is doing so many different things. You've done modeling and acting and coaching and DJing. Um, you have a beautiful family. Can you tell us about what was going on in your childhood and how you fled to Egypt with your mom and your sisters? Yeah, um, well, first it started great. <laughs> Just like every child living with my family, um, sisters, brothers, and playing and running around. And at around, I think, don't know how old I was but definitely around five or six um, a lot of things I started to notice was happening which was uh, around the time the civil war was getting intense the civil war started the second civil war started in South Sudan in 1983 so I was just like wow um, something is not right and things just didn't feel um, normal anymore. And one day my mom just told us that we were leaving. Um, we were escaping because of the war that's happening. And so many villages were being attacked. South Sudan is an indigenous country and it is one of the youngest countries in the world right now. I think we're about seven years old. Um, we became independent in 2011, but we've been experiencing war for decades, maybe like three or so. So it's been a constant thing. It's generational thing that we were used to. And so, yeah, my mom just, she was one of the few that was able to break the generational traumas and curses and say, I don't want to have my children live through this anymore and took myself and my sisters and escaped with us. Um, one of the routes we were able to escape to was um, Egypt. Um, at the time, Sudan was not called, it wasn't separated. It wasn't Sudan and South Sudan. It was just Sudan. Um, so we were in the North of Sudan and, the closest way for us to escape to get to another country's border that felt safer was Egypt. And so we escaped um, to Egypt. Some refugees escaped to Kenya or Ethiopia, which is one of the main refugee camps. Um, so yeah, in Egypt, many of the South Sudanese who were living closer to the North, we found ourselves there and we had to restart a whole new life in Egypt. I, I was born in a well-off family. Um, my mom and my dad are both educated and they're so huge on education. But at this time when everything just fell apart, it was survival mode. And my mom just thought about saving her daughters and making sure that they don't experience a life worse than hers. Um, or at least a better life. So yeah, that's that's how we got to Egypt. And then we lived there for four years waiting for 
um, to be granted as refugees and an asylum so that we can get a sponsorship or get lucky to come to America or Europe or another place that will accept us. That is better because Egypt wasn't also a good place for us to be. We face so much discrimination, oppression for since I was born, since my mother was born. And then it just continues, you know. So we just felt like going somewhere else would be better. And we got lucky and we got the refugee lottery and we came to America in um, the late 90s. So before we start talking about your journey to America, I just want to like, because obviously I can't even fathom, like I can't even try to understand what you went through. And I just kind of want to hear your, like what, when you have to just pack up and go like that, like what do you bring with you? Did you pack stuff? Did you just go on a whim? Like was, did it happen fast? Did you plan for this? Like what was some thoughts going on? I mean, I know you were very young, but what are some of the memories that you have from that time? Oof, yeah, that's every time um, I hear that question, it, it makes me like go back so much deep into myself and it makes me feel like, oh my God, wow, I never really processed what was happening. Um, and mind you, I was like seven or eight or nine years old going through all of this 10, 11, 12. 13, 14, going through mm. all of this stuff, but I never get time to process or think about it because I just constantly have to keep moving and moving and, you know, surviving. <laughs> um, but I was definitely feeling a lot of fear and anxiety. And I don't know, it was scary. It was just not, it wasn't even good, but somehow we were able to stay optimistic in the worst situations ever. So I don't know, but this is a good question because I get to dive into it more in my book, which I'm writing. It's actually helping me heal too. Mm. And it makes me think about, wow, um, children who go through trauma, we never get to be children. Yeah. So... That is something uh, like so much deeper on its own level that it's indescribable. But yeah, it wasn't great. It wasn't good. It, it was terrifying. And you're just a kid. So at that moment, you just want to be a kid. Kids get hurt. They play. They go to the playground, get hurt, get in a fight. And two seconds later, they're laughing and smiling and they move on. Mm. So that's how I was kind of operating to in crazy traumas. So yeah, after you, so you got your one lottery ticket um, or the refugee ticket and you got to go to America and you went to New Jersey. And then from there you went to California to reunite with your family and then having your daughter, you decided to try modeling in New York, which is a whole different chapter, obviously, of your life. Before we dive into that, what would you say, how did you adjust to living in the US? Um, like, how is it different? Can you share some stories of, you know, life in Sudan, and then Egypt, and then coming to a country like America? Uh, yeah, so in Egypt, it was also more, as I told you, it was a lot of discrimination, I still had to be surviving. And then 
when we came to America, it was it was good. We were happy to to go somewhere better, the land of opportunity, all the great things we heard about America. Like they have a whole orientation when you're a refugee, when you win the refugee lottery and they tell you what to expect. And all the things that you expect, oh my God, you're going to get a car, you're going to be living in a beautiful house, you're going to eat everything you want, you're going to just have an amazing life there, it's different, new clothes, all of that stuff. And you come to America, but you realize it's another reality of the same things we were going through. And at this point, I was 15 years old, I guess. Um, so, and to me, that's how I was thinking. Again, that's my mind at 15. Um, like, oh, wow, this is great. But I feel like it's not what I thought. Uh, we had to struggle again. We still felt out of place. Um, it was late 90s, so not many people were familiar with refugees anyway at, at that time. The refugee crisis is more something you hear about lately. But um, we were some of the first refugees who came. Actually, my cousin, who, who is a model, was in the first flight and lottery um, system of the first refugee who came in mid 90s and so we were about in the first few people in that circle but we came later and we got to meet my family here in America my cousin um, but when we came to New Jersey the place we were we lived in the we lived in the um, um, danger, dangerous place. We live in Newark, New Jersey, and it was one of the um, one of the toughest cities at the time in America to live in. One of the most dangerous cities to live in America. We lived in the projects, so our life was also still scary again. Mm. But now it's in a building, like we're in that building in that neighborhood. Um, and it just felt like we're starting over and over and over every time the same story again in a different place. Um, and people not knowing or understanding who we are, what are refugees, um, not feeling like we're accepted in, in other places in America or f from other people, we didn't feel acceptance. Um, and I was just going through, it was like my life happening in my face, you know? I'm like watching my life and I'm learning. I'm like, oh, wow, that's how things are. Mm. Oh, okay. But what can I do? That's how I always thought. But what can I do to just keep trying to make it better? So, yeah, that was my experience in America. It still wasn't the greatest, um, but I was grateful very grateful because at least now I have a place where I can have a chance in life that is better than what I had. And I was able to be in places with people who actually 
saw my heard my story and and saw me deeper they they were able to say oh my god mari you went through all of that you know and i'm like this is normal but they had to they are walking me up to this is not normal and it shouldn't be a life that anyone goes through or any child goes through um so yeah it was both a, a blessing and also kind of like a curse at the same time but they work hand in hand because life is like that it's always two things and it's about what your reaction is going to be and what you're going to do from it mm. so i i just felt like i'm going to take it as all a learning experience and continue to be better and find better ways to live in life that's incredible that you were able to keep asking that question like what can i do you know you weren't in a space of like giving up or just like letting it you know bury you in the trauma that you were experiencing but what can i do um i want to talk about how you started modeling and your career but i'm also curious before we before we go there um i see you as someone who's very creative have you always been creative was there a creative side to you as a as a young adult as a child that helped to like uplift you or is that something that kind of came more later in life i think i discovered it later in my teens in america um especially yeah because i had an uh, an art teacher who would he would of course give us assignments and i'm like i'm not going to be able to draw that <laughs> he's like just start square by square you know and i started and i would get it to the t <laughs> he was like you are so great at this and my writing teacher told me i was really good at writing stories So those I those people I call my angels because they mm. help entice something in me they kind of like sown a seed in me and it later on came up or I worked on it behind the scenes because I was too shy to try to like do things um in front of people so it helped me later on in life yeah Yeah. Well, that definitely changed because you became like the ultimate job of doing things in front of people, which is modeling, <laughs> being in front of the camera, acting, you know, having to emote oh and yeah. Yeah, so can you tell us about um when did you decide that you wanted to try your hand at modeling and how did that change the trajectory of your life? Um yeah, modeling. So, I never knew anything about it. most south sudanese girls don't really know know much about modeling unless they were born in america um so when i met my cousins the the one, the refugee ones i told you that were some of the first ones that came here so we this is in california so we went to the same middle school and one day we were walking to school and a lady told us about uh, modeling I guess she was a scout. It's like you guys can really be amazing. You're so beautiful. You can do this. Do you know Alec Wack? And we knew Alec Wack because she is an icon and she's the first 
African and South Sudanese woman of that skin color, dark skin, that was being represented um, into the mainstream and looked at as beautiful, which is something we were not used to. So we're like, oh, wow, modeling. She's like, well, you can make a lot of money. And to us, that was like, oh, let's do this. <laughs> we want to help our mothers, we, you know. We're always helping our mothers anyway, so we need to help them better. So the, um, that's how we found out about modeling. We went to a modeling scout. Um, it was hard because that scout we had to pay to be seen. It, it was one of those things. Um, and I was like, I, I'm going to find the money to pay for this. So my cousin and I both found our way somehow. It was a struggle, but we did. And we made it. But it was really like great agents there. People from all over the world. And we were the top picked. Um, my cousin was 21 agents picked her from different parts of the world. And I was 16 and so now it was time for us to just up and leave and go become models. But the big but, it's not just, it doesn't just happen like that. So many girls, young girls, like, I want to be a model. I get a contract and I, and that's it. And I'm beautiful and that's it. No, there was a lot of buts. So we had to pay for the scout, which is not a good idea. Actually, don't do it. Don't pay for anything when you're getting scouted. And then you um then after the scouting when we got picked which had really legitimate agencies and agents we had to make a way for us to get to new york or to paris or wherever it is that was something we didn't even have passports to get to anywhere else um paris london anywhere else outside of america um so that was like, okay, we don't know about that, but we still stuck by it because there were agents in LA who really believed in us and they like, come on, you can do this, at least start in LA. And we were able to at least start in LA. So before I even came to New York and really took modeling seriously, I finished high school, I went to college. And yeah, I started later. I came to New York when I was 22 years old. Yeah, awesome. I just want to say, because, I mean, Robin, you've been modeling for, what, 17 years? Um, uh, 15 years. 15, yeah. sorry, 15 years. <laughs> and Mari, you have such a much a much longer career than I have. Um, I'm a, kind of a newbie <laughs> to the industry, if, you com if I compare myself to you two. But having you know run my own agency for four years now, I'm starting to really understand a lot about the industry. And I think from modeling as a career can be either so incredibly empowering or so disempowering. And I'm just interested to learn or hear your take on the modeling world and how, like, did you see any, um, what would you say, like commonalities with how you had experienced growing up and being a refugee? Like, did you like feel like you were suddenly thrown back into that world where like this discrimination and there's hierarchy and there's you know, lack of power? Or did you actually feel like all those experiences had helped you somehow and that you now felt more empowered because of it? Oh, I, I felt both to say. I felt empowered because I went through a lot being a dark-skinned girl, woman, and being judged, 
looked at as less than because of my skin color. So that is a huge problem. And then, for example, when that lady found us on this quote unquote discovered us on the street, she saw beauty in us, which was so odd for us to even hear. And some people in the fashion industry um, did recognize the beauty within our skin and told us really nice things about us. They, so that, that helped empower me because it was it, somewhat a mainstream that opened up this, this other side to the world that yes, a dark skinned woman can be beautiful but it was limited to how many dark-skinned women or light-skinned Black women or other women of color can be. And that's the problem because we had to like kind of fight and compete against each other. It was like the Black token girl in the agency, that one Black girl in the agency at the time I came in New York was um, 2000, what, five, six, seven, something like that. Um, yeah, it was like that. Every agency had their one black girl. So there wasn't room for other black girls. Or maybe if they had a second black girl, it was the light skin, the Chanel Iman type. So that's the part where it could also disempower you, where there is a standard to beauty, you know. You're beautiful because of this. But why are we not just beautiful just because we're beautiful? Why is it because I am that first dark-skinned woman to be seen in the world, so I am beautiful? Or, you know, you're beautiful for a Black girl. Why do I have to be beautiful for a Black girl? Um, yeah, so, so it was both to me. Um, there was the part where it was empowering to me and the part where it just felt like this is a bunch of bull S, you know. Um, but again, it also depends on how you see things. So I was always like observing things and understanding things beyond a little bit than other girls and some of them were really young some of them started at 13 14 15 and didn't know any better have you seen an experience changes in the industry over your career in terms of more inclusion and more space where are you are you finding that or are you still seeing a high amount of discrimination for you know still wanting just kind of the token black girl as opposed to really creating space for a variety of, of, of black beauty to be seen? Um, I think it's slow. Um, it's moving slowly towards the change. And I feel, I feel like it should be already happening more. Um, and when it is happening more, it's because it's more trendy. So it's not because it's because people in the industry want real change or being held accountable for real change or holding themselves accountable for real changes because, oh, now everyone's talking about this. So now let's, let's open this space up for black people because black lives matter is the new topic and everybody needs to have black people in their companies and their agencies. And 
No, don't do it because of that. Do it because you are you actually care to see change and you are going to practice real authentic change. So I I want to see it being more real and being and and happening, not happening slowly. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Definitely. It's there's a lot of performance happening out there for yeah. sure. So I was just mm-hmm. curious how that how what your take on it and how that's affected you. So thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, if you can give us some of the highlights of your career um, and, and, you know, some of the transitions, cause you know, how did you go from modeling to acting? How did DJing come into it? Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the, you know, kind of incredible moments that you've had? Um, yeah, they all happen spontaneously. <laughs> the modeling, <laughs> the DJing, the mod- the DJing happened because of the modeling. So I would go to all these amazing parties. That's, that's like some of the greatest things about the fashion industry, the parties. <laughs> but the music is crap, right? Yeah, <laughs> the, music, change the music was crappy. And it was like, I just didn't feel the vibes of some of the DJs or any of that. So I'm like, I can do this. I can do this. Like, And then half of it was men that mm. did not and, and the rooms were filled with women. It was always, the, the clubs would be like, oh, one guy and 10 women. You know, that's how they let people into the club. So the women like, I think we have more sexier vibes when it comes to music. Um, and that wasn't happening because half of the time it was men DJing. And they were playing really like things that didn't really like kind of flow with us in a way (laughs) so I'm like I can do this and that's just how it started I went and bought myself some DJing equipment well actually my friend told me I I should start doing this because I would always put the greatest playlist together and she's like you should start DJing like this would be amazing (laughs) I was like oh you know what this is a good idea and again because I was really shy it took me time to really like start doing it, but I did. I just bought myself equipment, practiced a little bit. Then I started hitting up a couple of female DJs that were doing it, literally a couple at the time too. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, and they're like, yeah, you know what? Why don't you come to class? I can do this. I can show you these things. And I went to class and one day I was walking to class and I saw a, um, a stripper store, you know, like those like sex stores. <laughs> and they yeah. had these shoes on the window. They had these long stilettos that were incredible looking. They weren't clear because most of them were clear. <laughs> they were like Michael Jackson, black and white um, the men's shoes, you know, the like men classic shoes yeah like loafers like yes yeah black and white but they were stilettos and I was like whoa those look sick (laughs) (laughs) so I was like let me stop by the store I need those shoes so I grabbed those shoes and then I was late to class and and um, my mentor she's like why are you late I was like well 
this is you're gonna love why I'm I have here. a reason <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I put my shoes on top of the speaker she's like oh wow those are so awesome I was like yes because of these shoes I was like I love stilettos maybe I should call myself stiletto and that's <laughs> why I call myself DJ stiletto a sharp object feminine and fabulous <laughs> yes <laughs> I just listening to your talk, I feel like you say that you're shy. That's not how I know you. Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're humble. You're definitely not someone who's in your face, but you just, there's, a, there's an energy to you that's incredibly inspiring. And I feel like you're someone who's just like, you don't put yourself in a box. You don't categorize yourself. You know, it's like, I could maybe be a DJ. Who knows? Like I did modeling, like that worked out. And it's like, you try things. And I think that's such a healthy way of looking at life. Um, and something you mentioned earlier was that you, you kept finding gratitude. Like when you came to New Jersey and you lived in, again, in a very difficult place, you kept coming back to gratitude. And I think that's something that we can all learn and practice a lot more of. Um, and I just want to hear your thoughts, like how has gratitude really made an impact in your life? And do you, is it something that you keep practicing today or like, how do you like, yeah, how do you go about life? Cause I feel like there's, you know, there's so much light to you and, um, probably so many things to learn from what you do. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> I, I'm, I feel so comfortable with you guys. That's why I'm <laughs> like this. <laughs> we can do this all day. Yes. <laughs> um, but gratitude is so important to me. It really does keep me alive. Um, even for the little things, especially when it's hard, because sometimes it's not just, oh, be positive and everything's going to be great. Sometimes it's really tough to be positive. And those times is the hardest times for me to find gratitude. So I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to do this today. I, I just want to be mad today. Um, those days happen. And it's okay. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm grateful for this moment. I'm grateful for my madness right now. I'm grateful I can feel you know, I just, I'm brainwashing myself, guys. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. I just have to do this. If I don't do it, I'm just going to drive myself nuts. Um, I, I feel like everyone should, no matter how hard it gets, you know, even, yeah, be grateful for the bull, you know, be grateful for it all. It's okay to say bullshit. Okay, bullshit. Because I didn't know. I'm like, am I, can I curse? I curse yeah, a lot. Curse. Yeah, you Terrible. can curse. Yeah, but yeah, seriously, be grateful for everything bad, good, bad, and ugly, and allow those moments to happen when you feel bad because it's okay to feel bad. Those are a part of being human. Um, so today. In this day, I have learned to allow myself, allow for things to have their course and being grateful for that and being grateful for being able to make the decision to allow things to happen. So, yeah, I'm grateful for my bed. I'm grateful for this chair I'm sitting on. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to laugh with you guys. I'm grateful I have teeth. <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. When you break it down, there's so many things that we can come back to even in the hard, hard times. And it's like, honestly, it's so healing just to hear you say that, that like giving yourself permission to feel things and not try and judge it or 
make it go away to just like sit with the feelings and mm. then come back to gratitude. And yeah. Mari, are you coaching? Have you started coaching people? Because I've heard that you are taking clients. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. And I, I think you're one of the first people I told. I hope it's okay that I, I yeah, said Yeah, it. it's okay. <laughs> I need, I, I, I'm glad you're bringing it up because I need to start talking about it more. That's my shy part again, taking over. Girl. <laughs> well, I bring it up because you clearly have a deep energetic wisdom that you can bring and you have perspective and just really like such a big, beautiful heart. So I'm really excited for you to, you know, to, to see you taking this next step on your journey of coaching, because I know that people are going to get so much value from, you know, from having you in their corner. And I think coaching just in general is a really important thing that we can do with each other. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about your coaching? I agree about that. You know, I was, I'm such a huge person on self-help and self-empowerment, self-care, through my traumas, these are the ways I've been able to heal myself, including art, art therapy. Um, yeah. So from self-help books, for example, I've learned how important it is to have a mentor or a coach. You need someone that you can come to and have advice on the, on the things you want to reach um whatever your goals are and that someone needs to be someone who knows those things who have experience or walked that path um so not just anyone right so that was something i really needed in my path of growth and i've learned that i needed to have mentors or coaches or people i can learn from especially people who have what I want and and need and what I aspire to be. Um, And that's how I got into that before I became one. Um, And then from, from there, I get a lot of letters, a lot of emails, a lot of messages from people from all over the world. Um, about how I've helped them somehow through my story or through something I've said or, or, or through an event that I was speaking at or something like that. And some of these people are um, young people too who really need mentorship or, or need coaching and um, not because, oh my God, they really need it, but because they have so much potential that they need some guidance to expand that potential. And so that's how I started. And also with moms, I, in my group, I think I became one of the first moms in my group of friends. And they would look up to me for some things, how I even do it. Some people don't even know I'm a mom because they're like, oh my God, it just, your life just seems so easy. Like, you, you know, you, when did you have that baby? When did you have that girl? <laughs> I'm like, yes, that's my daughter. That's my son. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I wasn't acting. <laughs> um, but it's because I've been learning from all my experiences and you use myself as a guinea pig in life to learn every day to become a better person. And I'm able to um, do self-development to where I want to be with my goals, aspirations, with who I want to be, with the future I want for myself, my family, my children, even my friends or strangers, that I feel like this is a part of my duty as a human being to elevate, not just elevate for myself, but with others and for others. And so self-development and self-care is important and it's okay to have that. And I started to just... um, expand myself with other people and coaching other people. And now we just work on expanding ourselves and helping ourselves. Um, So it's all about self-empowerment, the coaching that I do, and how to get to your greatest legend and how to be a good person in life and how to manifest the things that you want. Mm -hmm. All of that with no harm to yourself or to anyone else. So that's the coaching I offer right now. That's amazing. Thank you yeah. for sharing that because you need to start talking about it more. So now it's going out to all our I listeners will. to get ready for it. <laughs> yeah, I will talk more about it and I will put more info out there about it on my website, marimalek.com. Um, there's probably a little bit of info about it there, but yeah. And we'll include it in the show notes as well. Huh? Yeah, totally. Yeah, we'll yeah, we'll include yeah. it so that our, our audience can find you, you know, for people who are interested in working with you, which I will just personally endorse right now, which would be amazing. So, you know, people should definitely, you know, seek you out because I think that you have a lot to offer. One thing I want to cover before we wrap up is ultimately how I know you, Mari, which is um, your nonprofit, uh, Stand for Education. And this is just another chapter of you that makes you so amazing. And me being a climate nerd and all, I actually know that scientists around the world are now saying that one of the most influential ways to fight climate change and to reverse global warming is, is actually to educate girls and to empower women and obviously girl power because <laughs> that's what we believe in. But I just want to hear like, what went into you starting this organization and what do you guys do at Stanford Education? Um, We are a charity organization focused on providing access to education for underprivileged children, especially ones who live in conflict. And we focus on girls' education, too, because girls in um, third world countries or developing countries do not have the same rights to education as boys do. Um, So, yeah. This is what we do at the charity organization. So it's a bunch of change makers. Everyone is welcome to help me make and realize and manifest um, the manifesto of our charity, which is basically building schools globally everywhere for children in conflict, children who need it and underprivileged children. And I want to make this into ultimately um, free education, whether it's primary education, whether it's secondary education, or whether it's higher education. Right now, we have built a few schools in South Sudan. We have a primary school, we have a secondary school. And this year, 
we are building um, my greatest um, dream yet with, um, with the charity, which is um, a vocational school. So this vocational school is going to focus on art, science, and technology. Um, and we'll have 100 students that we will focus on. We will develop, mentor, coach to become the greatest leaders in the world. Um, yeah, so this is what we're doing. I want to invite you guys to be a part of making this dream come true so, because it takes a village to make a difference. I can't do what I do by myself. And it takes like lines and lines of different types of people because the people I'm building this for are indigenous and they live in a village and they, there's no access to internet there, barely any electricity. And so I want to build these sustainable schools that will preserve the life of these people and the way that they live, but also bring ways that they can connect to the world because their stories are so important. That's why I use my story so much because I'm able to highlight their stories too is the women and girls that are there my story is their story their story is my story and it's every other woman's story that would be in the situation if this was to happen to them and it's so it's it's amazing and I would just say to anyone who's listening because I feel like and I get this question a lot it's like how can I do better how can I help more and you want to do something beyond just recycling or you know composting and those daily habits that you do at home like how can I make a bigger mm -hmm. impact and I would say participating in these kinds of projects where you actually help build a physical school make sure that there are a number of girls or children in general who gets education it's not only not only does it have a profound impact on that community in that village, but it actually is actually on a global scale really beneficial for a future. And it's like I said before, it's been proven by scientists around the world that educating girls is actually really, really impactful when it comes to climate change. And so yeah. I would just say to anyone's listening, go over to um, is the stanfordeducation.org. Yeah, go to stanfordeducation.org or .com and learn about what we're doing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Mary. Before we go, before we wrap up today, are you up for our 10 rapid fire questions? <laughs> rapid fire. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. It's just a chance for us to get to know you. Yeah. Like a little, you know, get to know you in different ways and kind of um, just learn a little bit about you and also for you to share like little bits of wisdom. So uh, I'll start us off. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? Let's go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was born <laughs> ready. <laughs> there you are. Love it. Okay. Number one, fill in the blank. I believe in a positive future because? Because we deserve it, especially the younger generation. Yes. Number two, morning bird or night owl? I am now a morning bird. I used to be a night owl. <laughs> that's, the, that's the dj to mom transition right there like back to having a young child again like yes yeah. now my parties end by 4 p.m just kidding <laughs> <laughs> day All parties are the best anyways so yeah. i'll come to that party <laughs> uh, day parties are the best parties yeah <laughs> okay number three a favorite quote Ooh. use your platform 
don't let your platform use you. Who said that? I don't know, yes. but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. That's awesome. I always say yeah. that, but I don't know who said that or if I gave birth to it, but it's unknown. <laughs> if we don't find someone who said that, we'll give it to you. You'll be yeah. the one quoted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number four, a book you read that really stuck with you. Mm. Oh my gosh. This is a hard one. There's really good books, but I would say right now, the richest man in Babylon. It's about financial advice. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And p- parables from like 4,000 years ago. It will change your life. I've read, read that, that actually. My dad say like my dad had me read that a long time ago, and it has it really. Mm. It's like simple stories and incredible insight. It's so good. Yeah, I just finished reading that um, last month in my book club. It's really great. Nice. And number five, a mantra or phrase that you repeat to yourself. Ooh. I am in alignment with all that helps me grow. Powerful. I love that. Okay. Number six. If you could instill one change in the world right now, what would that be? Oh, man, so much. But uh, my number one thing, free education for all. Yes. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. That, would, that yeah. would honestly solve so many problems. Seriously. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Um, what is something that you're letting go of? Uh, toxicity, negative vibes, negative energy, empty energy. If you don't help me grow, you've got to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gotta shed that energy. Clean out the room. I love it. Yeah, spring clean. (laughs) What is something that you're inviting more of? Uh, More love, more calmness, more peace. And money, opportunities. Yeah, more opportunities. We all need that. Mm -hmm. I love Thank you for throwing that in there. Because I feel like we're so afraid of asking for that. More money, more opportunities, people. We all need and want that. (laughs) We deserve Mm -hmm. abundance. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Prosperity. Love it. Okay. So what is a message you want people to hear? Don't be afraid to ask for what you want. Just like we talked about in this past second, like sometimes so many of us are afraid to ask for these things. I want to be rich. I want to be beautiful. I want to be this and that like it's okay ask for what you really want and be bold with it and be your true self stop being afraid yes all right mari our final question so this season of the podcast is called optimist in action and so our question for you is what does being an optimist in action mean to you It means um, really like taking the steps and the action to make the changes that you want to see change. You can't expect change to happen if you are not a part of the change. Don't just say things. Do something about them. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?